News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Well, it's uh, Wednesday, the 18th of August, and uh, a very interesting program we've got coming up for you. It seems as though people want to break away (laughs) in the Western Cape. Well, it'll be interesting uh, what you think of the interview that I had today with Jack Miller. It's coming up a little bit later. That's the Cape Party, which Stuart has now become the Cape Independence Party. I know you watched it because we pre-recorded the interview. And I know that you felt that 37-year-old Jack Miller might not be the next president of the Cape, but he's going to be a power broker. No, I agree completely, Alec. I think he says the right things. I think he speaks for a lot of people and what people are thinking as well. But I think it's a fascinating story. I mean, you've seen Brexit. I know it's not the same thing, but it's a similar concept. And people want the independent free- this freedom to make decisions that better for- is- makes things better for themselves. And for the economy. Interestingly, with Brexit, we are seeing a number of little wins that are going through. Uh, We're talking in the editorial meeting at Biz News this morning about the factory. uh, British vault in battery uh, factory in the UK. And Glencore's just obviously put some money into it, invested into it with their supply of cobalt. And I think it's one of a few... uh, decisions lately that has gone well for the UK with regards to investments. But what has been interesting is the biggest series ever, up until now the biggest series was Game of Thrones, uh, but now the biggest series ever that is being done by Amazon is going to be uh, switched from New Zealand or the production thereof, Britain, because New Zealand, according to Amazon, haven't really done terribly well with the way they've handled the coronavirus. As you know, they had one case, and so they closed the whole country down again. And Britain, with Brexit, would have offered a better deal. And I guess that's also what is motivating people in the Western Cape to say, hang on, uh, we want to have our own market-related policies, etc." It's It's such an interesting story. And as you'll hear from Jack Miller, he says their intention is only to get about 5% of the vote, but then they'll be the power broker. Then they can swing it and force the DA to call a referendum and the people of the Western Cape can then decide on their future. Maybe it's it's an idea whose time has come. There's also a big shift to the community, Alec. If you look at interests, you can't sort of paint one country with one brush. You need to have different elements for different areas. And that's why there's a big focus on provincial and municipal elections to create these units that actually look after the people in these little communities. And I think that's a big thing that will come through with the Cape sort of independence discussion is what works for this area of the country with its people, etc. So I think it's fascinating. Well, that's our managing editor, Stuart Lohman. I'm Alec Hogg, and uh, I'd love to just put our two <laughs> colleagues from the Cape on the spot. Uh, Nadia what's in our virtual studio. Nadia, uh, would you vote for Cape independence? 100%. I definitely uh, would. And I Justin Ray Robert, mm, sorry, not. No, I, I, I just want. I think that would be the thing that needs to happen for my the rest of my family in Gauteng to move here. <laughs> oh, okay, so you got a, a bit of an ulterior uh, motive to it. And Justin, Alec, as a born and bred Cape Townian who's been in Joburg for the last three years, I've I've seen both the Western Cape and Gauteng, and just the mismanagement in Gauteng versus how your taxes 
And um, those sort of finances are looked after more so in the Western Cape. And as a result, yes, I would I would be in favor of Cape Independence. Okay. All right. Well, this isn't a political uh, kind of <laughs> poll, but it just shows you that there is on the ground, and it, including amongst young people, are uh, our colleagues who are looking at it. And that's what Jack Miller is going for. He's saying, just talk to the young people, and the young people need hope. And if they can see an incredibly exciting future, the one that he perceives as uh, Cape Independence with the Cape Independence Party. But it's a great interview and it's coming up in just a little while. Also today, we've got Magnus Haystick. Uh, we'll be talking to him in a little, in a little while. He's going to be focusing, uh, on something completely different on whether or not you should be buying a retirement annuity. No prizes for knowing why not. And then, uh, well, why he thinks you should not be doing so. And then, uh, Nadia, you had an interview with a managing director of FNB a little later today, Jacques Sillier. Uh, that's coming up later in the show. Yes, no, it was great. We discussed the topic of brain drain, which is very relevant at the moment. Uh, what so I liked was your opening, your opening question where you actually asked him his background. He's not a, he's not a banker. He didn't actually start as a waste clerk. Yeah, yeah it was very interesting. So it sort of actually stands for what he said in the interview, that they want people from all spheres to work in banking and that is, that is possible now. And Justin, your interview tonight was uh, with the CEO of A2X on a day when the JSE's biggest competitor would have been smiling when the JSE was actually grinding to a halt. Exactly. And what came out of that interview was it just underscores the need for competition, Alec. The JSE is, is um, they run as a somewhat monopoly in this country. And when events like today happens after their biggest day ever yesterday, um, beating their record by, by almost twice, um, the BDA systems, which are more than 30 years old, collapsed. And yes, as I said, it uh, just underscores the need for competition in this country. Indeed it does. We've got all of that coming up in the program. But before we get there, uh, Stuart, what are the business community reading on the website today? Well, Alec, the big one, uh, Nimola, uh, not, we published a couple open letters um, written by Nimola, um, nameless and sort of faceless in a sense uh, from where it comes from, but um, which looks at the cabinet reshuffle and just basically sums it up. So it was a car with four flat tires. There's sort of no replacement. You couldn't replace all four tires. You know, you're going to go one in the back. And then he talks about some of the cabinet must Did not say he, because how do you know it isn't a she? And I, I'll just have you know that nobody outside of my little PC, yeah. sorry, my little laptop knows who Nimola is. And Nimola has said the reason they need to remain completely anonymous is their position uh, is of a relatively high profile and as a consequence if anyone knew yeah. who Nimola was uh, certainly the person would be judged but secondly it would be uh, could be quite dif difficult for them to earn a living in the future if that were the case so let's not say he or he, he or she just, okay. just Nimola, just Nimola, Nimola, Nimola. Nimola. Yeah. so it's our anonymous uh, correspondent I like okay, so that's the top red story today. I think, Nadia, you're going to have to uh, do one of your um, your reads of Nimola as you've done in the in the first two. They've been they've been incredibly well uh, received by the business community. Very well. Uh, the first open letter reading was by almost threefold the highest listened to podcast on Iona in the last month. Incredible, and then it was uh, the the actual uh, article itself. At last I looked for 250, 300,000 people. Insane. Read it. And the video also almost 200,000 views. So definitely uh, hit a, 
hit a very sweet spot with the community. And what else, you on the uh, side? Another topical discussion. It's uh, through Panda, Alec. On the, they've written a piece on the mailing guardian who wrote an article or had a, an opinion piece published on vaccine hesitancy and were heavily attacked by certain uh, media outlets. And they've put together a piece looking at the funding behind these outlets that sort of wrote the attack and stuff. So that's doing very well on the .com. And then we mentioned Glencore. That's also a, a topic of discussion that's been picked up on, on .com. Uh, it's one of the lessons for South Africa on how Brexit is finding ways to bring in investments. So it's maybe something for South Africa to learn from. Nadia, as far as business TV on YouTube is concerned? So, yeah, on the topic of Cape Independence, one of the videos that's doing really well today is the summary of your interview with Phil Craig. Uh, he's of, from the Cape Independence Advocacy Group, in which he said that 58% of people in the Western Cape want a referendum to vote for Cape Independence. And another video that's doing really well is the explainer video of the Zueli Mkise digital vibes corruption scandal. And then Paula Sullivan unpacks it very nicely, the details of the affidavit. And then the third video is our flash briefing from yesterday, which just covered the news headlines and vaccine hesitancy. and Lots of interesting stuff uh, there on Business TV on YouTube. Stu, uh, podcast? Uh, on the radio side, Alec, Herman Oshaba interview from last night on the Zambian elections, uh, top of the pops. Uh, Stephen Nathan as well on Transnet, Zambia, and uh, Michael Berry from The Big Short. And then last night's BPH uh, rounds up the top three on the dot com, uh, radio side. The BPH is the Biz News Power Hour, which you're listening to right now. Do remember that we often take out the highlights uh, for the show and then run the full interview. For instance, the one with Jack Miller, uh, the pre, um, the one pre-recorded today. You'll hear about ten minutes of that interview, but if you want to hear the whole thing, uh, go into Biz News. Uh, business radio on spotify or itunes and you can get the whole half hour okay coming up in a moment the markets bride rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different the daily movement in the markets mean change for us all sometimes small sometimes big this daily market report is made just for you by bride rock the first ever needs mesh to life insurance that changes as your life changes Okay, so let's start with the news headlines. Here's Nadia Swart. ESCOM is considering buying a fleet of electrically powered light delivery vehicles, according to its CEO, Andre Dureta. We buy hundreds of light delivery vehicles every year, and we would like to explore the opportunity to pivot the motor industry to electric vehicles by using our own demand for locally manufactured EVs to enable investment. Dureta said that by acting as an anchor market, ESCOM could help the country's motor vehicle industry start moving from producing petrol and diesel cars and buckies to electric ones. He did not provide further information on when ESCOM would make a decision to obtain electric vehicles, how much they were expected to cost or where they would source them from. The ESCOM CEO noted that the National Association of Automobile Manufacturers of South Africa warned last year that the country's motor industry could lose 80% of its exports by 2040 as countries announce timetables to prohibit the sale of petrol and diesel vehicles. National Treasury says it is working through the nuts and bolts of the planned policy changes to allow the early withdrawal of retirement savings. It said the aim is to ensure the preservation of funds so that most of the money saved for retirement is actually kept for retirement. South African households are already not saving enough and giving too much freedom with the policy could be disastrous. Despite this, it acknowledged that there are times when emergency funds are needed, but withdrawals have to be limited. 
the ANC runs the risk of failing to register its candidates to contest this year's municipal elections by August 23rd IEC deadline, as staff refuse to work overtime and over the weekends due to outstanding salaries and other benefits. Party employees countrywide remain on a go-slow in protest against not being paid, which means the ANC's leaders face the risk of failing to submit the names of their preferred municipal councillor candidates for the elections, which are scheduled for October 27th. Faber Potriter, the general manager at ANC headquarters, Lutuli House, has written a desperate letter to disgruntled staff, pleading with them to suspend the go-slow, work extra hours, and over this weekend to help the party meet the deadline. What an interesting turn-up for the books that is. Justin Rowe Roberts has got today's market report. Justin? The JSC All Share Index was down at 68,000. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 14 rand 93 cents to the dollar, 20 rand and 55 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 49 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,785 an ounce. Kruger rand will cost you around 28,000 rand. Brent crude is flat at $70 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 680,000 rand. In the financial news, the start of equities trading on the JSE on, the, on South Africa's main stock exchange was delayed on Wednesday after the BAUS was unable to fully process transactions from record volumes in the previous session. Tuesday saw 145 billion rand of equities traded, which caused significant delays in processing on some systems. Trading was due to start at 9 a.m. local time, but was delayed by more than five hours as trade started at 2.30 p.m. Local market heavyweights NASPIS dominated trading on on the JSC on Tuesday, falling 8.1% in surging volumes following the completion of a restructuring and exchange transaction with unit process. NASPIS investors were invited to swap their shares in the Cape Town-based company for process stock. South Africa's inflation rate fell to the lowest level in three months in July, giving the central bank more leeway to delay raising interest rates. The Monetary Policy Committee turned less hawkish on on policy normalization in its meeting last month, and warned that deadly riots in the eastern KZN province and the commercial hub of Gauteng would likely slow the economic recovery. The unrest and the continued impact of the coronavirus pandemic that caused the economy to contract the most in a century last year has raised uncertainty and weighed on investor confidence. Slowing inflation could allow the central bank to keep providing support after cutting rates to a record low in 2020. Consumer prices rose 4.6% in July, from a year earlier, compared with 4.9% in June. That was less than expected, and it takes it closer to the 4.5% midpoint of the central bank's target range. This market report was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Wednesday, August 18th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Afghanistan's new rulers gave their first government press conference yesterday. The Taliban also urged people to get back to their daily lives, but there's still fear of the new Islamist regime. I'm Joanna Gao, in for Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. After a harrowing few days following the Taliban's takeover of Kabul, the airport resumed evacuation flights, and the country's new rulers urged citizens to go back to their daily lives. And a Taliban official held their first government press conference. Here's the FT's Stephanie Findlay. 
It was a Taliban spokesman that many uh, people had known through uh, WhatsApp groups or phone calls, but had never actually seen. So he sat uh, down for a press conference in Kabul and repeated what the group has been saying over the past recent days, uh, made assurances to keep peace, to keep security, and to also offer a general amnesty to government workers, to the soldiers that they'd been fighting against for 20 years. He also said that women would have an active role in society, uh, but with the caveat that it was going to be according to Islamic law. So the big questions are, how sincere are they about these assurances? And can they make sure that what they promise at the high level of leadership in the central command can also be communicated down through their rank and file that are spread out throughout the country? So speaking of following through, the Taliban have offered amnesty to government workers who feared reprisal for working for the previous government. Are they following through with that? Uh, the Taliban have offered an amnesty to government workers, to everyone, they say. But we are hearing uh, reports. I was talking to government workers today who have said that they were harassed, who have said that they've had documents taken off of them, property taken off of them, while other diplomats have said that the Taliban are arriving at their doors even though the Taliban leadership has insisted again and again that no one is to be harmed. Again, we're watching if they can actually enforce this on the ground. So to what extent is life getting back to normal in Kabul? I think that there was uh, immediately, obviously, a massive sense of panic and people went inside their homes for safety. There was the mad scramble to the airport. And now people in Kabul say that life is slowly returning to the streets. However, people are still quite scared and especially those connected or affiliated with the government have gone underground. That's the FT's Stephanie Findlay. The UK has been trying to attract listings to its stock markets to maintain its position as a global financial hub. But now one of the biggest companies on the FTSE 100 stock index is set to leave. The mining giant BHP said it would unify its dual corporate structure and shift its primary stock market listing to Australia. And when BHP is removed from the London exchange, many UK shareholders will be forced to sell. So the company's move could face opposition. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Well, it's Wednesday, and on the Biz News Power Hour, that means time for Magnus Haystick to be giving us all of his insights. And today, Magnus, we're going to be looking at something that has been very much on minds of people since the month of shame. Lots of people wanting to emigrate, wanting to perhaps look at a future, but there's also retirement annuities. Now, if, you, if you're thinking of emigrating at some point in time, and I guess if you're in your 20s, uh, then it, it makes no sense to take a retirement annuity. You're not going to be in South Africa later on. But what about people who are a little, little uh, maybe older than that? What, what is the situation with retirement annuities? Yes, good afternoon, Alec. Of course, it was before the unrest in KwaZulu-Natal. Uh, government has ca- came with certain proposed changes to under what circumstances you can withdraw money 
from an RA pension fund, provident fund, when you decide to uh, emigrate. Up to now, the financial immigration was fairly simple. You would financially immigrate and, and you pay certain taxes and you will withdraw your money and it will leave with you when you decide to immigrate. Now, that ruling was changed, so there's now a three-year waiting rule, which is bad enough. Government has said your money must remain behind um, when you decide to immigrate in, in, in the formal immigration process. Now, that's already creating consternation amongst a lot of people who might be middle-aged. They might have a 10 or a 20 million rand in various retirement products that they've been told to invest in all their lives. And they need that money to set up home or an office or a lifestyle somewhere else. But now that is locked up. Now that's already creating a lot of anger and a lot of uncertainty. And lo and behold, last week, government came with a new draft taxation bill, which said in addition to the three-year waiting rule, there will be an exit tax applied to those people who decide to formally immigrate. So that has not only immediate and, and very, very severe impact on people who want to immigrate and they need the money now. That's that's now very debatable how long they're going to wait and what tax rate they're going to pay. But the question many people, younger people, professional people, they might not even be contemplating retirement now, but they might do it sometime down the road. There might be another flare-up. Now, the big question is, is an RA still worth it? Should you even consider an RA in the sense that it's already a very illiquid investment instrument? It's subject to Regulation 28 of the Pensions Act, which has severely impacted your growth because you only were allowed 30% offshore exposure over the last 10 years. And now you've got the uncertainty that, yes, you're building up some retirement capital, but you might change your mind. You might want to immigrate for whatever reason. It's your money. But government is actually saying, well, it's not your money. We gave you that tax-free gap to put money in. We have a right what you do with your money when you pull that out. Now, that to me is very ominous. And people must be made aware of the fact that government is already doing it and will increase increasingly exercise control over your retirement money, which them together with the retirement planning industry has been has been urging you to put money away on the basis that people retire with not enough money and they're going to be poor and destitute. But you putting your money into a monkey trap. You can put your hand through the trap but you can't withdraw it. We, and, and that to me is very dangerous and we need to debate this. And a lot of people, young people I speak to today say, that said, I'm not interested in an RA and I support them in that. I say, I agree with you. It's not a viable instrument if immigration is somewhere in your, in your future. Let's just go through that again. So you now, if you emigrate from South Africa, financially emigrate, uh, you cannot take your retirement annuity with you anymore. That's got to stay here locked up for three years. Is that correct? That's correct. It's not only your retirement annuity, it's also your pension fund and or preservation fund. So, right, so it's, it's, it's the re retirement capital now stays in South Africa. You can go. You and your family can go. But the money uh, remains behind. You start your process 
And you have to come back three years later and you have to prove to someone in Treasury, I have immigrated. Uh, uh, here's my proof. I have a home. I have a job. Can I please have my money? And our mm. government last week came with another addendum to the tax law saying, well, we're going we're gonna to tax you when you take out your money over and above the normal tax rates that are applicable. All right. So you've paid into your retirement fund through pre-tax money. You get a tax benefit. And as a consequence of that, government is now putting all these regulations in place or putting all these rules in place. How big is that tax benefit, Magnus? Is it? And I guess that's the question. Is it really worth it? Uh, or should you rather just be investing in something where you don't get a tax benefit? No, it's a tax uh, delay. You don't get it really. If you actually be brutally honest, and I'm one of those who said, I, I don't think it's a worthwhile investment. I don't personally market them to my clients, but there are big companies who do, and they all focus on the tax, the tax, the tax, you're saving tax. I say, hang on, guys, sit back a little bit. You get the tax relief now, and 10 or 20 years later or 30 years later, you're going to be taxed again. Uh, when you withdraw your money. Yes, there are other elements that uh, we don't have enough time to discuss, but apart from the 500,000 tax-free at this stage, which hasn't been changed for many, many years, it's actually declining in real terms, the balance of your capital will be taxed. So it's a bit of smoke and mirrors. And if you start doing after-tax and pre-tax numbers, there's no question that the last 10 to 15 years, you were better off not putting money into an RA but rather pay your tax now so you've got tax certainty and then you invest it yourself and then you can choose where you want to invest it. And the returns have been, been be double or treble than within the regulate, Regulation 28 product. So we, we understand your advice is very clear. Don't buy a retirement annuity. But what about those people who are employed by big companies and they have to produce or contribute 6% of their salary every month into a pension fund. Are they also going to be prejudiced by this new tax and indeed the three-year rule if they were to intend uh, immigrating at some time in future? Yes, indeed. They will also be penalized. They might be, they don't have a choice when they join and very little investor choice. Strangely enough, before I omit to mention it, there are certain cases when I do recommend RAs, and, and I recommend it primarily for people older than 55, where they can use very cleverly their contribution benefit to get their tax-free option back. So they do two annual single premium RAs of 247,000 Rand, which you withdraw almost immediately a week or two later and get the cash out, but you've got the tax relief in your books and you do it again the next year. So you can, if you're smart, you can use that loophole to get the tax relief uh, and get your money out. And thereafter, if you are older than 55 and staying in South Africa, you can use the RA contributions every year and immediately move the money to a living annuity. And I do that with my money, my own personal money, and my clients are saying, um, you stay in SA, you need the money, so put it in RO, get the tax relief, and immediately move it across to a living annuity where you can get 100% offshore exposure. And that's been a very, very smart strategy to follow. 
It's the younger people building capital over time, and it comes down to the regulatory strangulation of, of Regulation 28, where we're saying you may not invest more than 30% offshore. And, 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 and that, to me, is a very... I know it's a political reason. There's fears that if they open the, the, the gates, a lot of money will leave the country. But it's, 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 it's impoverishing people in those investment instruments. Magnus, just to close off with, if you do then contribute every month to a pension fund at the company, if the company forces you to do that, is there anything you can do about this excepting going to the trustees and perhaps trying to get them to change the rules? That is the first way to do it. Uh, you go to the trustees, you start writing to them. They are acting on your behalf. They're the liaison between you and the investment company. But but in, in my experience, I was a, a, a trustee of the, the Argus Pension Fund, you might recall the old Argus company. It's, they, just, they just rubber stamp. They don't listen to you. They, they, they smile when you talk and off they go. They're acting not on your behalf. They're acting on the behalf of their employers who are the big asset managers and off they go. So once again, the odds are stacked up against you. I mean, we need to question this regulation 28 and, and 30% is, is enough for you. Sit down, young man. 30% is, is, is enough for you. And secondly, your, your, your asset allocation for someone at 25 and 55 is exactly the same. Um, and we've, we've been taught from day one, young people should be taking investment risks. They should be investing in Apple and Google and live with the volatility. But here we are, one size fits all as long as it's black. So shut up and, and, and be happy with that. And so uh, there's something bubbling under the surface as far as retirement, retirement funds are concerned. Well, it's a warm welcome to Jack Miller, who is the head of the Cape Independence Party, uh, which is what the new name is going to be, Jack. It used to be the Cape Party. How old are you, Jack? I'm, uh, goodness, I'm 37 now. So, yeah, I started the Cape Party when I was 23. You guys have contested elections in the Western Cape, but it almost is as though your time has finally come. Let's go back a little in your history. Where did the party come from? You're right. Our time has come. It's been a long journey. Uh, there's a few places I can start it with. We can go back to prior to 1910. Um, I believe the Cape has always been different to the rest of South Africa. South Africa is actually not a natural country. Our name isn't a country. It's a geographical location. Where we are, we're at the bottom of Africa, south. So, therefore, when the British Empire forced us in the Union of South Africa, they gave us this name um, without our consent and called us the Union of South Africa. So, Cape independence is not a new idea. I believe it exists in the soil, the territory, and in fact, not just uh, the Western Cape, but uh, even KZN has got strong secession movements. Uh, the Abu Tembu and the Eastern Cape want independence. We've got two independent countries living within our borders, Lesotho and Swaziland, independent countries. And uh, there's a strong argument for many other provinces to, to also be independent. Um, but the Cape Independence Party, uh, when we started in 2007, um, we basically were started out of a complete and utter disillusionment with the direction that the country was going in. And uh, we knew for a long time that Cape Independence 
or certainly a greater amount of autonomy was the only solution to the sinking ship that is South Africa. 2007, that's way ahead of the, uh, we're now 14 years later, where it seems to be catching on. It did take a while, though, for you to get any momentum going. Uh, Why do you think that was? Tell me about it. I think different people have got different capacities for how much they are willing to put up with. And and I think that the Cape has largely been insulated to a lot of the destruction that we've seen in other parts of South Africa. Um, I think that it's now becoming blindly obvious to everyone living in the Cape that uh, there is no future for South Africa. Uh, You don't even hear the word rainbow nation anymore. Now all you hear is expropriation without compensation and uh, various types of uh, racist and centrist destructive economic policies and political policies pushed by the ANC and the EFF. So I think that, um, you know, we saw that this was coming and um, we're at a point now where the destruction, goodness, I mean, all we need to do is rewind a few weeks and look at what happened in KZN. I think the people in the Cape just don't want that. We don't want our malls to be burnt down. We don't want people being shot lawlessly uh, in in anarchistic streets. Um, So I think all of these things are fusing together to create the perfect storm for what we believe is an inevitable outcome, not just for the Cape, uh, but this entire union which was forced upon us in 1910. Its time has come. Um, It didn't work under the British Empire. It didn't work under the apartheid government, and it's not working under the ANC regime. The system itself needs to change, and uh, I believe we'll see um, not just the Cape go independent, but many other territories in South Africa. You've contested a number of elections, how have you done at the polls? Well, we've done we've done exceptionally well when you consider how the political game works. Um, you know, the Americans are almost uh, they have created a science of politics, and basically, if you have a Democrat or Republican candidates and they go head to head, the party, regardless Republican or Democrat, the party with the more dollar spend wins nine times out of 10. So let me tell you what the K party situation has been. Um, I've spoken to my friends in the DA in the previous elections and asked them what their budget was. They had a budget of 1.2 billion rand in the last elections. The ANC had a budget of 2 billion with a B rands in the last election. The Cape Party, we scraped together, um, you know, donations uh, from all of our various supporters in the vicinity of 200, 300,000 rand. So we... We aren't even in the financial game. So the fact that we are doing so well, the fact that Cape Independence is exploding the way that it is, in spite of us being up against some of the most formidable political and financial odds, I think shows the strength of the idea. Um, obviously, I mean, I'd like to take this opportunity to, if anyone who's watching this wants to see Cape Independence happen, this is how politics works. Please go to our website. Please donate 50 rand a month, 100 rand a month. It all makes a difference. That's more posters on polls. That's more adverts in, in radio and online, etc. social media. So uh, money does make a big difference. And I think that's why we've seen our earlier results um, struggle against parties like the DNA and C. But now, because I think the issues are so big, um, Cape independence cannot be stopped. And I think we're going to see this election. Uh, we're going to get the best results we've ever had. And uh, we believe it's just a matter of time before independence 
uh, becomes a reality. We will do everything within our fiber and power to push for a referendum on Cape independence. And that's why you've changed your name, presumably, to become even more aligned with your your mission. But what about you? Where do you come from? What's your background? Well, I mean, just regard to changing the name, I'd say it's more of a returning to our roots. You know, I think people have actually referred to us as the Cape Independence Party more times than they've actually referred to us as the Cape Party. And in fact, when we started in 2007, there was a big debate. Would we be called the Cape Party? Would we be called the Cape Independence Party? And frankly, those two sort of names have been interchangeable for us because people so clearly identify us um, as standing for Cape Independence. Um, my personal background, well, you know, I, I mentioned starting the Cape Party in 2007, but in fact, uh, my understanding and roots in this go back uh, a lot deeper. Um, my father was involved in 1993. Uh, he founded a group called the Committee for the Cape Republic, and uh, he chose the civic route, um, a pressure group. He, he got hundreds of thousands of petitions together back there in 1993, 1994 to, to push for um, people were asking, what would this new South Africa look like? And he, in conjunction with the IFP, the Progressive uh, uh, Federal Party, um, the the uh, people like Leon Lowe and Francis Kendall, etc., who wrote the book "The Solution: South Africa, the Solution," and there were a lot of ideas in ninety three, ninety four about what the new South Africa could look like. So my father. And also, he very close friendly friends, Dr. Mario Ambrosini, who was the right-hand man to Prince Mangasuti Botelezi, were on the side of a more decentralized, federalist, uh, if not outright independent, um, uh, restructuring of South Africa. Unfortunately, what we saw happen was the centrist uh, apartheid government aligned with their... Uh, political, even though they they chose different skin colors to persecute, their political ideology had a lot more in common than people like my father and Leon Lowe and Francis Kendall and and uh, the, the roots of the DA then, the PFP, etc. Um, so I grew up with a this in every aspect of the environment around me, uh, knowing the history of South Africa and prior to South Africa, and especially fascinated at that young age seeing these discussions taking place about what what pathway South Africa should take and and obviously being heartbroken to see the route that we did take people often forget that the ANC is not just the ANC they're part of something called the tripartite alliance um has a close ring to the apartheid uh, alliance, but anyway, tripartite alliance consists of the ANC, the uh, Kasatu, as well as the SACP, and uh, that stands for South African Communist Party. And uh, if people are uh, bewildered as to why we're seeing the types of communist policies that we're seeing in the country today, um, this is not a surprise. The ANC was always going to move in this direction. And now we've got uh, two versions of uh, extremist fascism and communism in the form of the ANC tripartite alliance and Julius Malema's EFF pulling us ever more deeper into more and more destructive policies. So where to from here for you? Well, we've got elections coming up. Well, this is another, I mean, we're absolutely opposed to uh, this agenda to try and move the elections to uh, February next year or even further than February next year. We elect politicians for a five-year term. What essentially, if this goes ahead and the elections are postponed, we'll be opening up the slippery, sl- uh, slippery slide doorway 
to uh, electing politicians for six years or more. This is not a democracy. This is not how things work. So um, we're absolutely opposed to the um, uh, the changing of the elections. Um, and so we hope that they will go ahead on the 27th of October. And uh, we think that we're going to do exceptionally well in the upcoming elections. And uh, I think our branding is well aligned to do that. The Cape Independence Party, as you can see, the Cape Independence flag uh, behind me here. Uh, this is this is branding. This is identities, which um, which people are are. Um, it, it's it's the only solution. People are excited about it, and I think when they see us on that ballot, in the privacy of a ballot booth. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of people putting their support behind us and us getting multiple seats in these upcoming elections. So uh, once we can do that, we can start putting forward our plans. Jacques Sellers joins me today. He is the CEO of FNB, which is taking strides to create more employment opportunities in an effort to retain higher critical skills in the country. So Jacques, just by way of background, can you just tell me about yourself, how you got to FNB? And Ari, thanks, and uh, thanks for the listeners for some time. Um, well, I mean, personally, uh, I'm, I'm an engineering background from uh, from Stellenbosch University, and um, spent a few years in engineering space myself before uh, transitioning into sort of the financial services sector. And I think at the time, you know, it was when it's like it was the year 2000 actually since I joined uh, First Rand, um, and I think the Excitement for me personally was just to see how much relevance an engineering uh, skill set, well, I guess all alternative and non-traditional finance skills have had in, uh, in participating in a, in a very exciting transition for, for, the, for, for financial services as a broader sector. You know, and uh, so uh, delighted that so many other type of disciplines are able to participate now. So it's a very exciting time. Can you just explain the topic of brain drain? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's not a it's not a secret that uh, you know, sort of our country certainly over the years have had a challenge to firstly develop talent um, across the sectors, and then secondly to then retain the talent. And what is very special about our country is that we have a, a very and actually our continent has got such such opportunities and such an excitement, you know, in in many of the topics which actually are in many ways we we have executed sort of world leading ways of doing things. If you take mobile banking and, you know, just how we're using fintech and secure tech and, you know, reg tech and, uh, and all of these enablements that we need in our industry. So whether you apply, I guess, engin- engineering or technology or, or quant skills at, uh, at finance or at mining or at agriculture or at, uh, at uh, you know, sort of the tourism sectors, there's such an application for all these type of skill sets. And, and clearly, from a business, we need those skills, and uh, and and it's great to be in a country where are, there are so many opportunities. It's just that important that we all make them visible to 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 talent, so people can mm-hmm. can see it and they can experience it. You know, twenty years ago, I don't think a quant would have said there's a great opportunity in banking, or an engineer would have said there's great opportunity mm-hmm. in banking. And nowadays, I mean, those are it's important that I, that we position our opportunities and that talent get get exposed to them. Look, we can't force people to stay. But as long, as long as we have opportunities to display it, people are excited about these things and, and they, they have an opportunity to shine and, and uh, sort of, you know, add value and, and purpose to their lives. These are, uh, that's our role, you know, so and, and ultimately that makes it easier for us to manage our businesses. If it, 
the more talent we have, the better chance we have at solving for all of this need uh, our communities have. We have a columnist at Business, Nimoler, and he wrote a third open letter to President Ramaphosa in which he added up all of the tax that he pays, which amounts to 70% of his annual income. So on this basis, what reasons do you think people have to stay here? Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I can't go into all the sort of reasons, but I think, you know, one, I mean, people all have different purposes in life. Our job, clearly, as it relates to sort of adding some magic into financial services, as it relates to our offering in the markets that we participate in, these executions are really, really exciting. And, you know, if there's some talent out there that that in their own mind was looking for something to do that uh, that could add value and could make a meaningful difference, then these are great times. You know, when we started our careers, you know, sort of 20 years ago, I think the the opportunity to shine was quite difficult because, I mean, I think our tool sets were quite outdated. If you think about how long it took you to climb a sort of ladder in your career and and to ultimately try and get into some impactful roles. In today's execution with all the data and technology around, I mean, you really can add a tremendous amount of value in a very short space of time. Our challenge is just to demonstrate that opportunity for people. You know, I think the days of of people wanting to work forever in a specific sort of area, even if it's not just in one corporate but or one business or one industry, you know, over people really want to walk, walk in, have an impact, make a difference. And I think the talent of today are looking for opportunities to make a difference. Now, whether that application is into solving for climate issues, for, for access to financial services issues, or for developing infrastructure uh, that can make society uh, function better, I mean, these are all unbelievable things, you know, and if you stand back, after having spent your career in something that you, I mean, I think people all know that you want to have made a difference and money certainly is one of them, you know, and, and with that comes all the consequence of taxes and all this stuff. But I don't think that's for many people, as you build your careers, you know, ultimately the only driver, people really want to make a difference. And, and, and we're looking for, for those type of people to come and work with us. So all countries have its challenge. There's no perfect place out there. And certainly you know, just when you're on top of something, you know, you might be faced with something else that you didn't actually see happen. But what we found over the last year, certainly as the pandemic hit us, is that, you know, just the amount of innovation that it le- that this again unleashed. You know, all these sort of challenges that a society faces are great opportunities for innovation and uh, and magic making to occur. And some of it sometimes is new industries and, and totally new ways of doing things. And other times it's just refreshing what we're busy with. You know, it's like if you think about financial services specifically, just the role it plays in enabling communities and societies, you know, whether it's responding to riots or pandemics, uh, you know, in the health matters or, or even, you know, electricity shortages and outages. These are real things, right? And it's great to be in a business and in a country where you can actually make a difference. And, and that ultimately is a holistic value prop that we bring to people. After the looting and the civil unrest in July, lots of young people that I know that weren't interested in immigration before started actually thinking about it. So if you were in your early 20s now and you had an opportunity to immigrate, would you go or would you stay? It's a very interesting question. I mean, I I finished uh, my uh, engineering degree actually in 94. That was the year when, um, you know, sort of the new sort of change of power happened. And I remember that many of the similar conversations were at the time you know, like, should we stay? Should we go? And some of our friends went and some of our friends stayed. And and, and I think what has been like two, two decades later, if I look at the journeys people have traveled, 
then I think, uh, you know, sort of, you know, in the early 20 phase that people are in, those are not the years that you need to necessarily select your destination forever, right? I mean, I think your 20s to 30s are years that you travel. There are the years that you go and see the world. Those are the years that you work in different places and you work in different countries. And you mustn't see those as big decisions around immigrating or not. Those are just call them travel years, call them what they are, build your experience and go and do your thing. I think it's the, the challenge more sits in the, in the brackets of 30s to 40s where people really need to sort of bed down their career and their destination options for where they feel that they can create that momentum in their careers. You know, and that, that's a tougher call, actually, is the 30s to 40s. Mm. Then I think the 40s to 50s, you're stabilized in your business and you, in, your, mm. in your journeys and you sort of get on with it. And by then you've created your foundations. You know, so, so the 20s to 30s are unbelievably exciting times. What's great about our country is we deliver unbelievable talent through our universities, our educational systems. I mean, if you look at uh, the type of, of talent we recruit on an annual basis out of our universities, we are really impressed with the talent our country delivers. Our job as business is really to make sure that that talent has sandboxes to play with, you know, and have opportunities yeah. to go and shine and make careers and, and make magic that they feel proud of, of having, you know, sort of participated in. And so that's why we're investing so heavily in modernizing our business you know, the old traditional retail or commercial banking is totally different today. And we almost think of us as like this migration from a traditional retailer to an Amazon execution or a traditional taxi business to an Uber execution or, you know, the traditional libraries for advice into the Googles of the opportunities of the future. And, and that transition creates such an incredible hotbed of talent, experience, building. And then once you've got those credentials, clearly there's a lot of opportunity elsewhere. It's important to get stuck somewhere as a, between, you know, get your hands into something. Mm. And that's what's so cool to be in a business that there's place for talent to join us. What would you say that young people could do to better equip themselves with critical skills? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the real thing for younger people mm. is to firstly find a passion. So let's say your passion is, I don't know, um, the agric world. And then it ultimately is important to, because I mean, that passion, you know, you can't, I mean, whether it's music or whether it's, you know, it's just important to find passion. But today's execution, no matter what your passion is, requires a, a, a tremendous amount of understanding and appreciation for the role technology and engineering and data play in those things. It's important to not lose sight of your passion, but then very importantly, equip yourself on all the modern tools and capabilities that will actually help you shine, as opposed to being stuck in old ways, you know, even bankers, you know, we could, there's an old way of doing banking and there's a new way of doing banking. And we, hmm. we must stay true to our passion called financial services, but we must be very good at modernizing our approach, not the what you do, it's the how you do it. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News and with me today is Kevin Brady, Chief Executive Officer of the Challenger Exchange in South Africa, the A2X Kevin, let's start with yesterday's record volumes on the JSE. Over 140 billion rand traded on the local bars yesterday, mainly as a result of the rebalancing taking place in the wake of the NASPAS process share swap. Did the A2X experience a similar uptick in volumes? 
Hi Justin, thanks for having me on the show. So yes, you're quite right. There was a very large, um, obviously, uh, transaction in terms of being able to swap your mass per shares for process shares and definitely boosted the volumes. Um, unfortunately, actually, we, we didn't benefit too much from it. Uh, one of the major reasons was the shortage of, of uh, stock borrow in the market. Um, and obviously, given our early stages, it's important to have liquidity providers. And without being able to access that borrow, it's difficult for us to quote or people to quote on our market. So given the early stages, unfortunately, we, while we had a record day in terms of number of trades, it wasn't our record day in terms of volume. The JSC has experienced a significant delay in trade today. It's just come to light that trade will start in the next couple of minutes around 2.30pm local time. My understanding is that the JSC is struggling to process the volumes of trades it experienced yesterday. What repercussions does this have for an exchange operator as a lot of market participants are quite rightly unhappy? Look, it's, it's never good for the national exchange to, to go down and it no doubt it dents confidence in, in markets and that's not good for anybody. I think one of the key reasons as we understand it, and obviously we're not on you know, we don't have clear visibility from, from the JSC perspective, but you know, it's the equity clearing system and the BDA system. And look the BDA system unfortunately is, you know, thirty five plus years old. And and I think this meshes the sense to the market is that the importance of competition. So if one market is down there's another one that's open. Now, this is particularly difficult because the, the JSC mandate the use of BDA. So now with BDA down, none of the brokers can see their positions. They don't know where they are. And it's difficult for them to try trade elsewhere. So I think the message here is you've got to be careful about having a single point of failure. And I think really the market should be crying out and saying, we need to open this up. We can't be mandated to use the BDA system. I would compare the ATX to some of the fintech challenger banks that we see growing, growing market share around the world, targeting the incumbent's weak spot through innovation. From new secondary listings to general volume of trade, how has business been over the past few months since we last spoke? So, look, you know, our business continues to grow. Uh, I think there's obviously always two sides. One is product. So we've now got 54 securities listed on our um, market with a combined market cap of about $4.6 trillion. Um, so my message there would be, look, the more product we have, the better. Um, and we would encourage corporate South Africa to consider having another listing. There's no cost to it. There's no risk to it. There's no extra work for them, actually. But it does provide their shareholders and their investors with choice of where else to, to transact. The second issue really has been around the broken community. To be fair, the broken community have always been tied into the infrastructure of the JSC, and it's made it difficult for them to trade across markets. And our message to them is there are solutions. We do have a number of brokers up and running, and we would encourage you to to support a, a second platform to enable your clients to not only trade on a day like today, but remember we are half the we have our fees are half uh, that of the JSC, and we also narrow spreads. So when you're buying and selling shares, you're doing better. And if you're buying something like you know Growth Point, it says you know 10, 12 rand, you're saving upwards of 10 basis points. That's more than most people pay in brokerage. So there are very strong reasons away from one of the. The, from the JSC being down, uh, you know, there are, as I say, low fees, narrow spreads, which is all good for the investors. So we really would encourage brokers to listen to their client base and actually kind of, you know, get connected and give them choice and, and be available to be open and trading. As you're saying, Kevin, those are the benefits of competition. And it's become mm. a worldwide trend for funds and ETFs to list on public markets. Signia has listed a number of ETFs on the ATX recently. Is this an area of growth you're targeting? 
So look, we first of all, we, we say that anyone who has a listing on the JSC should have a secondary listing on, on A2X. We also allow inward listing. So if you are have a you know primary listing offshore, you can inward list straight onto onto A2X. Um, so yes, it is a trend. I think the ETFs. Um, We've been lucky in terms of when I say we're lucky with Signia. I think they see the benefits. They see the benefits for their client base. And we hope it sends a strong message to the other ETF issuers that there are benefits and they should also move ahead and look to have secondary listings. Signia have attempted to list cryptocurrency-related ETFs on the JSE, although the local boss hasn't been willing to accept Signia's proposal. Would this be something you would give some thought to, given regulations allow? And as an innovator, it would be rude not to ask, what is your opinion on cryptocurrencies? <laughs> is this the future? So, look, I think, first of all, we're a, we're a, a secondary venue at this point in our life, so we don't do primary listings. So if a crypto uh, ETF has a listing on a recognized exchange, whether it be in South Africa or internationally, we would definitely consider listing it. Um, as I say, we, we would welcome it. I, look, I, I understand the challenges, and it's not necessarily just the JSC. There's a regulatory framework. You need to make sure we are looking after the um, the investors as well, and there's investor protection. I think for, from from a big picture, we need to make sure as a market we're getting our balance right between regulation and allowing new companies or innovative products come to market. You know, you swing too far one way and you don't get the growth. So that would, you know, that's how we look at it. We think you need to find, you know, a, a balance between those two aspects. And your thoughts on cryptos? <laughs> look, it definitely has, you know, one is very volatile. It has been growing internationally and gaining acceptance. One does feel that at some stage it's going to become more sticky and, and more used. Uh, I'm not a crypto expert, but it does feel like it's gaining good momentum. But I would, I would, I would caution, right? Okay. It is, it is volatile. Sure. And Kevin, as you've said, uh, the A2X is purely a secondary market right now. The last time we spoke a few months ago, you did note your intention to offer primary listings with time. Mm. How is this progress going? So look, uh, you know, when we look, we will get there. I think the key is to make sure there's sufficient demand for us to open up that area because obviously it does come with extra costs and, and, and bums in seats as such. Um, and as that demand grows, we'll definitely consider it. So look, it, it's, it's in the pipeline, but it's not within the next 18 months. We've seen a global IPO boom in the last 12 months, yet no new listings yet to date on the JSC and a number of delistings. Sentiment is hmm. dire. Does this make you hesitant to offer primary listings? And are you confident that business and consumer confidence will pick up in time? Look, you're quite right. I think South Africa has list, missed out on the listing boom, and I think uh, there are lots of factors for that. I mean, one of them being macroeconomic and political, but another one is also being, um, you know, I think over-regulation for, for smaller companies who struggle to see the benefits of, of having a primary listing. I mean, costs, uh, you know, in terms of red tape, uh, etc., and, and I think it does put them off. So I think from our side, again, we feel that there is definitely an opportunity to, to do things better um, and, and more efficiently and cost efficiently. Uh, but it's, it's obviously a balance. You can't have regulatory arbitrage. You, you need to do it in a way that, that, that still complies. So, look, it hasn't put us off. Um, I think for any secondary market in time, you need to consider primary listings because obviously that is the growth. That is the pipeline. Um, and I think just allowing inward listings is a big step for us, actually. So, you know, we can start trying to attract companies that have offshore listings that want to inward list into South Africa. And I think that will also help grow the, the range of stock available.
I'm Justin Roberts of BizNews, and you've been listening to Kevin Brady, Chief Executive Officer of South Africa's Challenger Exchange for A2X. Well, thanks for being with us uh, this Wednesday, the 18th of August. We'll be back again, same time, same place, tomorrow. Until then, from the BizNews team, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at BizNews. News.